For 40 years, Tom Green was a snook-catching giant in South Florida. He knew every bridge and tide from Stewart to Miami. In the dead of night, he and George Copeland caught enormous fish that bumped the 50-pound scale. He first stepped into a tackle store at age 11 and walked out of the one he owned 60 years and 11 days later. For decades, his store, Custom Rod and Reel, became the hub for all fishermen in the Boca Raton and Fort Lauderdale area. In 1978, he purchased his first collectible reel and for the next 43 years, amassed one of the most prized collections in the world. We hope you enjoy Tom's wonderful stories of monster fish that are now legendary. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties went to pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Tommy Green, welcome to the Millhouse. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Papa Pilar, here's the here's the Hemingway. Very well. Cheers, Tommy. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having yeah. me. Yeah. I must say, Tom, uh, over the years, I've known you for quite a while now. Probably uh, 20, I've, 25 years. Yeah. Um, walking into Custom Rod and, and Real, your store, was always just such a great happy place. I mean, my God, all the everybody. It was like, it was like the fishing central with the four chairs in the corner. Everybody sits there. You got a TV there, and everybody can tell fish stories and lies. It was awesome. Yeah, like it a barber shop. Fantastic, and, and and your knot machine and the knots and the knowledge you guys had in there and building product for the world. Right. I mean, your legacy is so big. I've had many times I sat there on the phone with three lines up there, and I got somebody in Australia. Somebody in Venezuela and somebody in Costa Rica on three different lines at the same time. And you never know who's calling the next phone call. But a lot of people don't realize what a great fisherman you were. I was above average. <laughs> but here, too, before we get into that, we used to come to Tommy Green's shop not because of the shop. We used to come to hang out with Tommy Green. And we talk heard about talk. Tommy Green. Right. We wanted you know? to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. It's and like when I first met uh, uh, Sandy Moret in the Keys. I walked in. I said, where's that hippie? Yeah. You know, so you had that same presence. It was the and, atmosphere, and people liked that. Right. Yeah, and you were the best salesman ever. We'd walk in there, and we wouldn't leave without dropping a grand. No, at least. The last time we were in there, we're not even offshore fishermen. We bought $3,000 worth of We came back with kites, Shimano reels, electric reels, and we we're like, what are we doing? I made this statement years ago. i got to make a profit off my friends. My enemies don't come in. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. That was so rough. much fun. Well, you just retired after 60 years and 11 days. Yep. You know, you closed the uh, closed shop. How does uh, how do you feel about all that? I'll be very honest with you. With this COVID and all this other stuff going on, it's kind of put a crimp in the lifestyle. You know, it just I'm not intimidated, but I'm scared to death like everybody else. We're all trying to be smart. You know, I went to work in Boca at the age of 11. I retired at 70. So that's every day I'm going to work every day. And I get up at 6.37 in the morning, open a store, and I work six days a week. A lot of times Saturday and Sunday, always Saturday, but Sunday. So I didn't know anything different. And your first job was working at a tackle shop, and your last job was working at a tackle exactly shop. Exactly same. Well, thing. you said sixty years in eleven days. You're seventy-two. You started at twelve years of age. Eleven years old, June sixth, nineteen fifty-nine. School was out June fifth. And so, your first job at eleven, what was that job? Well, it started just the way I got the job is I was hanging around a tackle store. My brother would go there in the afternoon a lot of times, and they would shrimp in the back room and the shrimp taken. I go back and dip. Customers bring in shrimp. Somebody bring in mullet, and I'd fillet them and cut them and put them in packages or packaged shrimp and I'd fill the Coke machine, fill the lead machine or whatever. Just right. I, I was a stock boy, swept the floors, and that was my job. And Bill Kane paid me a dollar and ten cents an hour, and evidently back then it wasn't too bad of money. So, so what would you spend your money on at eleven years old? Well. I had a father home that was literally almost blind. Mother was sick. It was I didn't spend money. I'd pay bills, no and that's what we did. So I grew up that way, which is a great way to grow up. I, I didn't ever buy anything. Still don't to this day. Yes, you do. You're a hoarder. I'm in your home. I see what you've purchased over the years. So you became obviously a great collector. Yeah, probably one of the greatest top five collectors in the world. Of, of, Definitely of so. Yes. Of, ra- used, of rod and reels? Of reels, only, reels, mostly. But I used to collect guns, and they broke into my house about 30, 35 years ago and stole 200 guns, and I was real happy with that. So what is it about collecting? You just love reels, or was it a money investment thing? It's you got to be smart to some degree. I mean, how many rod and reels do you have at home? 50? Probably. How many do you use? 10 or 5? One. Yeah. <laughs> Same deal. <laughs> you had what two thousand reels? Yeah, here, right. I did go. I liked one of my favorite places in the world to fish, and I've been with Andy Bean, a few of these guys. I've been there five times. I go down and fish the real no the river in 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 um, Brazil, casting plugs, catching peacock bass. After about the third trip down there, I get there. Pull out my rod case, and he said, what do you got there? I said, it's a bamboo rod. What are you going to do with that? So I'm catch a peacock bass. He said, you can't catch a bass on that. So I go over and get one of my reels made in the 19, late 1800s, early 1900s. Got black linen line on it and put on a – that particular day I used a Shakespeare made a lure called a Revolutionary Minnow. It has a spinner on both ends like a prop. Sure. I take that lure. Throw it along the shore, pop, pop, five, six, seven pound fish hits it. So I just caught a peacock bass the same way as the old man did in, in the turn of the century on a bamboo rod and a hundred year old reel, a hundred year old line. That's one of the biggest thrills. I think I caught 13 fish that weekend throwing a hundred year old rod and reel because I wanted to be just like they were. 
So put an old hat on, old white t-shirt, white sh- long sleeve shirt on, and I caught peacock bass that way, just like they did. And think about that, because that's 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 what it was. Right. So so take me back. So you work you're working at the tackle shop since you're eleven. Did you ever become a guide? Uh, yeah, probably. I used to get twenty five dollars a day. You know, one of the first people, first person I used to take was a, a gal named Helen Baker. Helen Baker's husband um, was a, the head guy, president of Pittsburgh Glass. They lived on Boca Lake, um, a big, beautiful house with a, let's say, a wraparound window, three stories high, which covered the stairway. It took them three times to get the glass down there because it broke every time in the boxcars, trying to ship it down. And she was very famous, but she was a member of the Women's Fishing Hall of Fame in Palm Beach, um, Sailfish and all that type of stuff. She drove a little old small, um, um, not like a little, it was a little small cars like the. Um, Volkswagen. No, 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 no. The, the Thunderbirds, the small baby Thunderbirds. Oh, right. Yeah, just back a long time ago. And her love was going to Okeechobee and catching bass and all that. Um, and she paid me a dollar ten an hour also to fish. We used to go over to, it's a great little story, behind Boca Raton. In the middle of town was a place called we call the muck pit. The muck pit was nothing but dugout holes with a crane to pick up the muck. And um, it's still up around 28th Street. It's a condominium built around those lakes now. And we're in there, and I'm casting a Dalton special, catching, you know, bass. And I remember throwing in, I got a picture somewhere of a bass on the back hook, a bass on the middle hook, holding up. Two bass at the same time. Fishing was good. Fishing was great. But the crazy story I got in there, Helen Baker was standing next to me. I'm down on the on the shoreline, and she turned white and started pointing at me, and I couldn't move. I looked down. I got a water moccasin that swam up and swam across my right foot and my left foot, going up and down my leg with that tongue, and the water moccasin was about this big around. Wow. And... You swim a little farther, go a little farther, and then finally, I'm ready to die. I've already peed my pants. It's going dripping down my leg. And this water moccasin finally gets about halfway across my leg, and I realize what I'm going to do. As soon as it gets a little farther, it was that big around and six foot long, probably weighed 40, 50 pounds. I jumped straight up in the air, and I kicked as hard as I could kick. Threw him out in the lake about 25, 30 feet, landing on the ground, knocking the breath out of me. She thought I was dead because I couldn't even breathe or talk. But that's just as crazy as the stories happened. But the next the next guy I took fishing, really for a living, all right, let's say, and Bill came would let me go fishing once in a while, is Sam Sneed used to come in the tackle store all the time. He would be at the Boca Hotel and Club playing gin rummy with the boys. So he'd come over to the tackle store in the afternoon. And he had a, a, an old lap straight boat with a woody station wagon that he drove back and forth to Georgia because that's where he was from. Or, um, played golf at uh, whatever the country club is there in a minute. I'll think Augusta? No, not Augusta. Um, Pine, Pinehurst. Right. Okay. Yeah, number seven. Right. And he used to uh, practice down here at uh, Pine Tree right, all yeah. winter. But uh, we go to Loxahatchee and go bass fishing. Well, Sam's a big guy. I'm a little kid. I'm a 145, 55 pounds at the time. I was just not even 18. 
10th, 11th grade at Boca High School. And um, we're sitting there, and the wind's blowing southeast about 35 miles an hour because that was May and June when the tuna were coming through in Cat Key because we got all the customers going over to Cat Key tuna fishing that same weekend. And we're sitting along there, and I tied a, it's called a golly whopper, so it's a big old black worm, had slits on the top and two hooks on it on Sam's line, and he had a Mitchell 300, which at that time was one of the greatest reels in the world. He thought it was anyway. And he had an old original, to me it was an E.L. Baker type rod or an old llama glass um, Salaflex blank. Okay, it wasn't custom, nothing of that nature. But that was his favorite rod. And Sam always did the same thing. He'd just wheel back and throw that thing as far as he could, just like hitting a golf ball as far as he could. He only knew one thing, throw it all the way across downwind the lake and then wind it back. And this particular day, it was cold. It was wintertime, blowing about 30 miles an hour, probably 45 to 55 degrees, but it's a wet cold. And all of a sudden he comes over a lily pad right up into a head of grass, the old cattails, this big old bass comes out of the water and just annihilated that worm right on the surface because to them it's nothing more than a snake. And he's yanking, he's yanking, he's whining, he's yanking. With a boat, we don't have trolling motors back then, the boat's blown away from this where the fish went. fish went straight down in it. And I said, don't, don't pull so dear, you'll break the line. Don't pull so hard, you'll break the line. And he's still yanking and pulling. What made me do it, I have no idea to this day. I jumped out of the boat, and I swam toward that head where the line went in, and I find the line, and I go down into the, the weeds, put my thumb into that bass's mouth, because to me it was just like a snook. That's how we had, we had, you know, that's how we handled them. Right. And I managed to get back to the boat. I've almost drowned twice <laughs> by this time, and all he's worried about is this damn fish. So. I finally get to the side of the boat. I throw that bass in the bottom of the boat. And it's so big, it's the biggest he'd ever seen in his life. Fish is flopping around. And he forgot about me. And I got no energy, no strength. I can't get in the boat. So he finally reaches over with his big hands he's got, grabs me by the back of the head, just drags my ass in the boat. And we're still drifting another half a mile. And he never said, are you okay? Never said thank you. Never said great job. But he had a bass about 12 or 13 pounds wow. in the bottom of the boat. Well, they took a picture of that fish. He carried that picture in his wallet till the day he died. Are you serious? Swear to God, I was told that by the by family and everything else. But that bass, when I got to the fish in the reeds, he'd already broken his line, literally. Because I remember the line was, you know, on the fish when I came up with the fish. And that's how he caught that bass. But that was the biggest thrill of his life, catching the biggest bass of his life. That's one of and the he, great fish catches of all time. Right. He tells that story about how he caught that bass. So he didn't catch the bass. <laughs> Tom Green caught that bass. I wasn't allowed to tell him. But this the first time on, on live screen I've ever told a story. In my book there, when I wrote that book, the story of the catching that bass is in the book too. That's but, amazing. Yeah. Well, everyone that knows Tom Green thinks about big monster snook. But, and right. the the greatest story there about chartering, I'm gonna tell you that story. I, I was yeah, you know what I was gonna ask you that. Yeah. I heard someone paid you a thousand dollars for let three me, let days. Let me tell okay. this. Now, let me tell the story real fast. 
I'm sitting in a tackle store. I had fish three nights in a row, four nights in a row in Stewart. And the snook were biting good. And we'd ride, drive up to 10 cent, 25 cent um, Roosevelt Bridge. And we'd stand there and fish all night. And I'd caught that week at least eight or nine, 10 snook over 20 pounds. I get a phone call sitting in this tackle store. And it had to be like Tuesday or Wednesday. And um guy on the other end of the line says, Tom Green. I said, yes, sir. He said, my name is such and such from Arkansas. And I want to come down and charter you to take me and my buddy snook fishing. <clears throat> I said, we do it every day. He said, you can come by and I'll sell you whatever you need or give you whatever you need. He said, we've been to Costa Rica. We fished, you know, Barnes's camp in the real Colorado. We've done it all. But all we ever catch are little three, four, five, six-pound fish. Never catch any big ones. You ever catch any big ones? I said, well, where I'm standing right now, I'm looking in my cooler next to me. There's three over 20 pounds, probably one almost 30. He said, we've never even seen one that big. We hear stories about them. He says, I want to charter you to fish. I said, well, I don't I don't charter. I said, I'll give you the name of eight or ten guides that will be glad to take you. Well, I want you. I said, well, sir, I don't do that. He said, what would you charge me? I said, I told you again, I don't take people fishing. Friends of mine, I'll take you, tell you where I'll be. I'll talk to you on the bridge, tell you how to do it, tell you what to do, and the whole bit. He said, well, I want you. I said, you can't afford me. And the guy on the other end goes quiet for a second. He said, well, what, 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 what would you say I can't afford? What would you charge me? I said, I wouldn't do it for less than 1000 a day. He said, okay, fine. I'll take Fridays, for Saturday, and Sunday. <laughs> well, at that time in life, you could charter a boat, whether it's in the Keys or here. Um, I think the sport fishing boats out of Hillsborough Inlet was $49, $59, $69 a day. A guide was $150, $200 a day. Um, that's all it was max. Maybe less than that. You probably could think somebody take you for 40 or 50 bucks with a boat. And he said, is there any good places to stay? Where do you want to fish? I said, well, we've been fishing in Palm Beach for the last you know, week because the fish are there. The mullet run's going on. The fish are there. And that's probably exactly where I'd like to take you, a place we call Flagler Bridge in Palm Beach because the fish are there. You can see them on the surface, and the mullet go by. They blow them up. And he says, well, that sounds great. Um, any hotels in the area? I said, yeah, you got the Peter Pan. You got the Holiday, Howard Johnson, Holiday Inn. Or, he says, Where's this exactly? I said, we'll be in West Palm Beach, right off Flagler Boulevard. He said, okay, fine. I have a secretary take care of that. He says, I'll call you back, and she'll call you back, and we'll get the particulars done. Okay, fine. That afternoon, I get a phone call. This is Susan, such a nice secretary. He's going to fly in um, Thursday afternoon. You said, go fish Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday. Yeah. He'll be in Palm Beach International Airport. He has his own plane, and he's coming from Arkansas. Okay. She said, I said, how will I recognize him? He says, I tell, tell him to dress like a trout fisherman. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> so we get there, and I finally I get off work at 530 in the store. That's in the middle of the season. Tried to go up by 95. Traffic was backed up for hours and days, as you guys have been through and understand. I pull up in front of the, the, the um, airport there. And there's two guys standing out there with a 
with a fly hat on, a fly vest on, and they look as big a tourist as you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> so I woke up and introduced myself, and he said, yeah, you're an hour late. And I said, well, you'll see why. So we get back in the car, and I have, I'm driving El Camino. At that time, I believe, 64 El Camino pickup truck, old red-orange color, with two live wells in the back end of it, and all the rods and reels, cash nets, all my garbage. And he looks in the back of this thing. He says, yeah, you've used this before. So he sets his Louis Vuitton bags down in the, in the back end of this truck. They get in the front seat. I have a piece of steel plate on the floor. I told the guy not to move it out of the way because you can see the, see the hole through it on the, on the road as we go down the road. And I start driving south to get to 95. We get to 95, then we have to go down to um, Flagler, go to A1A. And I'm looking straight ahead, and there's the breakers. That's where we're going. That's where we had reservations. So I pull up in front of the, the breakers and look just like, exactly like Jed Clampett's with the uh, the old days of the right. truck. That's what we look like. Oh, my gosh. So these all these busboys and all these other guys come out to see what we're doing. And they asked me if they wanted to valet the car. And I said, no, I got to go catch bait. So I told the guys, I said, I'll see you back at 9 o'clock. And by this time, it was after 7. So I had to go back across town, use five-gallon buckets, and fill the live wells, which I did. I come back, and I told them, I said, take those clothes off and throw them away. Go get some blue jeans and, you know, come prepared to be get beat up because you're going to get beat up. I don't know what beat up means. Make sure you wear a long sleeve shirt or a jacket or something. So they come back, and they're still dressed in sport fishing attire. So we get in the car, drive over the circle, drive over across the top of the Flagler Bridge. And I said, you see this? Isn't that beautiful? He says, yeah, boy, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. So this is where we're going to be fishing. Exactly what I said. Come down the base of the bridge, turn right, and go up US-1. And under every street corner, and there's no street lights hardly, there's girls working the streets back in the old days. Might have been 40, 50 of them we passed. And these guys are looking, what's going on here? I said, they're running a sale. <laughs> <laughs> so we go north about four or five miles to the the Ermine River. You know where the Ermine River is? No. That's uh, so just the north end of Palm Beach, dividing line right there. I pull the car over in the sand and the grass. He said, what are we doing here? I said, we got to go catch bait. What do you mean catch bait? You don't have bait? With all that water and all those tanks? No, we got to catch the mullet. How are we going to do that? I said, I'm going to teach you. So I grab a five-gallon bucket and a towel. I give him another bucket, and I got the bucket with a net in it. And we walk toward the bridge, go down the bank, and it's nothing but pure sand and sand spurs. This is 40 years ago. Everywhere. You guys never seen a sand spur from Arkansas. So we get over to the shore, and it's 15 foot down. He says, how do we get down? I said, you sit on your butt and you slide down. He looks at me like I'm crazy. So I get over the bucket, and I sit on my butt, and I slid down the side of this embankment which is a, like a mud embankment with grass and weeds and a whole bit, get down to the bottom. And the one guy said, get your ass down there. Come on. So the one guy's a head guy, and the other guy I called a peon. So the peon was dragging behind. So we get down to the bank, and I said, all right, be quiet. Okay. 
So what I said, what we're going to do is we're going to walk down the shoreline, and as we spook something, you'll see a little bit of ripple, and I'll throw the cast net. When I throw the cast net, you'll see what we're doing. Never seen this. So I got a 12-foot net, and wrap it up, wrap it up, get it set. And I take about five, six, seven steps to the west. Ripples in front of me, I pancake the net, and the whole net just comes off of this like this. And there's 30, 40 mullet in that cast net jumping. These guys are screaming now because now they understand we're, we know what we're doing. Bring the cast net back to the beach, fill up both buckets with water, put the mullet in it, and they're jumping out. You know how they jump out. Sure. Got the raglan on top, and they said, now what are you going to do? I said, you're going to take this back to the truck and pour it into the back of that live well. Who? Both of you. So they go back to the truck. They pour the mullet. It took them 30 minutes to get back, and they come back. I do it again, make one more cast, and have another net full of bait. So we take those two buckets. I take one, and the peon takes the other one this time. We take them back and pour them in, in the bucket, into the truck. Well, that's an hour and a half. Well, they're, they're very excited because this is exciting. Get to the car, and he goes, what do you got to drink? I said, nothing. He says, you're being a guide? You came all the way out here? You didn't bring nothing? I said, no. So we're going down Federal Highway, and he said, whoa, stop, stop, stop. I look at his little convenience store to the right, and I pull in the parking lot. They go inside, and they buy those small ice chests and some sodas and crackers or whatever they want to eat. And that's what you drink, and I think I drank Diet Pepsi in those days. So we got a few drinks, and we're fine. Set it in the back of the car, and we drive. We come up to the Flagler Bridge, right where we came from. I make it left. And I start driving over the bridge again. He said, well, that's our hotel. I said, yeah, I told you it's right here. So I go down to the bottom of the bridge, and I make a U-turn. Now where are you going? I said, i got to park the car. Where are we going to go? We're going back to the fish on the bridge. On the bridge, where's the boat? I said, what boat? He says, I travel thousands of miles, pay you ridiculous money to go stand on a bridge like these other do. I said, nope, that's just what it is. That's where the fish are. Well, you don't have a boat? No. Can't believe this. So I have in the back of the truck, I have what's called Dolly Mullet. It's written right on it in, in black. It's a wood frame that I set the live wells on. I have two 12-volt batteries underneath it. We plug the battery in, and it sprays back into the tank, and we keep the mullet alive. Throw a cast in with a five-gallon bucket. We load Dolly Mullet up. And I got four long snook rods, 12-foot rods. I give those to one of the guys to carry. And we push Dolly Mullet up the bridge to almost to the draw to the, to the last light. By the time we get up the bridge, which took another 20 minutes, these guys are so tired and so weak they can't move. So we get up there. Now what are we going to do? So I said, here, let's calm down. Let's look at this. So I show them what we're doing, how we're doing it, and what's going to happen. So... The mullet are going up and down the, the, sh the shadow line. He said, why don't we just catch our bait here? I said, because you throw the net here, you scare the fish. What fish? I said, look into the water, like, you know, and watch a school of mullet go by, and all of a sudden a tarpon, a 100-pound tarpon, comes out of the water, just annihilates the bait and snook in the whole bit. And then I take a flashlight, and I shine it, and there's about 10 snook right there. And I knew they'd be there, started the outgoing tide. 
how did you know they'll be here? I said, they were here last night, the night before, the night before, the night before. And they'll be here tomorrow night too. How do you know this? I said, well, I got a couple of years at it. That's why you call me. So we sit there, and I let them see what's going on, go back to the fishing rod, and I grab a mullet. And the mullet are half pound, three-quarter pound, 10, 12-inch silver mullet or black mullet. Hold them tight. And I used what back then was a 9175-74 Mustad hook, size 9-0, the biggest they made that hook in. And I, I invented something many, many years ago called throat hooking the bait. Almost like if you take a, a pilchard and you hook them underneath in that little hollow spot. Right. Does it make them it, swim down? What makes that? them swim down. <clears throat> so I designed that with the, with the pilchards and the mullet back in the, in the 60s on the bridges and and Stewart and all up there in Lake Ward, Juno Pier and everything else. So anyway, I tell the guy, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw this mullet out away from the bridge. And when it hits the water, I'm going to put tension on the spool and he's going to go down in the current. Not a wave, the current's coming back at you. And I said, all you do is you take your fingers and you take the slack up with the line. And as you're coming back, you're going to get a thump. You'll feel a thump. How do you know that? I said, you'll see it. So I said, who's going first? And Money Man says, all right, Peon, you're first. He called him Peon. So he sat there, and I flipped the bait out for him like this, and I watched the rug go, boom, like that. And he gets all excited, and I'd already told him what you do when it happens, put the reel in gear, you wind down when you get tight, and you yank as hard as you can, and you set the hook. Fishing 80 or 100-pound line. We didn't have braid back then. And I said, that fish is going to try to go under the bridge and cut you off in the pylons. You see them there. They're solid barnacles. So you got to wind, lift that fish's head, wind, lift the fish's head, and keep him from going under the bridge and the pylons. All right. Rod bounces, sets a hook. Rod bends double. He's screaming. The other guy's screaming. And he's going down. The bridge to the right, like 15 feet, like three or four steps. And then all of a sudden the line goes like this. He's cussing. He's mad. Fish took him in the pile and cut him off. What happened? I said, just what I told you would happen. You got to pull him out. So I looked at the line. It's all chewed up. So, so boss man, he does it. He catches one 15 pounds on the first cast. All right. Well, we stayed there from that night at... Midnight to about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, and we catch five or six nook up to about 27, 28 pounds. Wow. And they are they're now beyond words. So when this is all over, it's almost daylight, and they're dying hungry, dying drinks. They honestly didn't touch a drink, touch any food, or touch anything else for five hours the whole time, and they were pumped. But the funniest thing was when the, when the first guy lost his fish, He's crying about, he's all the skin off the back of his knuckles because the fish drug him down the rail. Both knees just tore up. He's bleeding in four places and his elbows because he got drugged down the, the rail. He didn't go fishing. He went to war. Right. Well, I'll tell you, I'll give you a story for about that. You can remember um, Dave Justice. Remember that name? Yeah, for sure. All right. We took Dave Justice, George and I, down to Fort Lauderdale, one of the bridges when he first started. Give him one of our big rods, 
And he sat the hook on the snook. Snook dragged him down the bridge. He broke his ribs on the side from the fish beating him to death. Are so you kidding? Swear to God. Tell me about your greatest snook night ever. Well, I've got so, 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 so many. But tell me the story where you got nine over 30 pounds one night. Okay. What happened was I was fishing with a guy named Murray Shatt, S-H-A-T-T. Murray was a, a computer expert. He worked, I believe he worked for Burroughs Corporation. And he went up and down the road every day on all the banks, taking care of, you know, all that type stuff. Um, and he come in a tackle store, and he lived in Fort Lauderdale area. Wife, kids, anywhere at the time. And um, he was a good-looking guy, but I think he had a lot of girlfriends in every bank. <laughs> so I can't tell those stories. But it's one of the crazy stories. But Murray and I end up in Stewart one night. Um, we're fishing 10 cent, 25 cent. And Roosevelt Bridge. And what would happen, you get the migration of mullet that time of year, they come into the shoreline of the bridge. On the on the south side or the west side of the bridge, the street lights were on the opposite side of the bridge. So the shadow line was farther away from the bridge. If the lights are straight up, right. the lights are straight down. And that shadow line is very important. Shadow line, because the fish lay in that shadow line feeding on the bait as it comes in. Right. So we flip a bait out again, same way. And the secret is get your bait deep. When you get it to the shadow line, you release the tension. It tries to come up to get away from the fish, and then that's when they hit you. And it's and it's always you're casting into the tide, right? Into yeah, the current. Coming at yeah. you, yeah. In that situation, yes. So um we're standing on that bridge and that particular night, there's a lot of big fish. Just one after another were big and big and big and big and bigger. So, um, by the time the night was over, we had nine snook over 30 pounds. What's it like to catch a 30-pound snook? It's like, what's it like to catch a 90-pound tarpon on fly? All right? And what's it like to catch a 120-pound tarpon on fly? That 90-pounder might outfight the 120-pounder. Right. Right? Can be, if it's an ocean swimmer. Right. So, you can never say, you know, why that one's better than that one. I was on the other bridge called 25 Cent Bridge one night with George Copeland. I used to keep track of the snook I caught every year. And this particular year, I had already caught 187 snook over 10 pounds. All right? I had a boy named Don Kaler, another kid that literally years ago, before there were computers, he had a, a computer log every tide, every wind, every current. Wherever we fished for 10 years, that piece of paper today is worth a million dollars because it's so in-depth, all right? He was um, worked for Delta Airlines in Atlanta, Georgia, personnel management. And the whole, he's a very smart guy, good friend. But we go to 25-cent bridge, and I had already caught 27 snook that year, 28 pounds, or bigger, 27, 28 pounds, but didn't have one 30-pounder. Years ago, everybody, everything was based on a 30-pounder, a 30-pounder, a 30-pounder. I was going to say, was that is that the mark? Well, that's it was our, it was our mark. Yeah. <clears throat> we had a, a snook tournament we used to do every year. You pay $50 entry fee, and everybody would get the, who caught the biggest snook got all the money. And they'd call me at 3 o'clock in the morning at home to come weigh a snook in the tackle store, which I did not want to do. And I'd get down there as a 26-pounder. I said, a 30-pound snook is a big snook. You gotta, I tell them to go home and kill them before they take over the house. But 
That was just, that's what it was. So I had caught um, 187 fish. My 188th one got on that bridge with George standing next to me. He gaffed it and brought it up on the bridge with a bridge gaff. And it was 35 and a half pounds. Big fish. Well, when I threw the cast net, I'd caught six or seven mullet and hooked one and threw it out there and caught him. Well, the fish is laying on the ground. So I took one of the mullet that's still flipping on this there, hook him on and throw him back out. He goes deep, thump. I get a hit again. I set the hook. Very, very heavy dead weight almost. Yeah, almost like you're hooking a log at first. Well, I got the fish to the surface laid out. It's another 30-pounder. But he's really not fighting. So we get the bridge gaff down. We get him, throw up up on the bridge. When he landed on the bridge, he went nuts. I hooked him on the top of the roof of the mouth, and somehow or another, he froze. Paralyzed him. Paralyzed him right there. But when I threw him on the bridge, the hook came loose, and... So my 188th and 89th snook was 33 and a half and 35 and a half pounds. Wow. Back to back. And I probably didn't catch but one more 30 pounder that year. So 30 pounders are few and far between. So so describe the perfect conditions for snook fishing, like like the moon phase, time of year, what's the best bait, tide wide, what, what, describe the Why best. Why do croakers work so well? Because that's a, well, that's a story I'll tell you in a minute on that. But going back to best conditions, just Con- condition wise, is if they bite on the southeast winds. Like and six, why is that? No, if they bite on the southeast winds, next week they'll bite on the northwest. They'll bite on the cold front. The opposite. Yeah. So you can never predict any day. And another thing we've we figured out after a hundred years that. You never go two nights in a row. If they bit real good last night, they're not going to bite tonight. Why? Are they full still? That's what I think. We've always said, well, they bit last night. Yeah. Aces. I mean, how many mullet can a snook eat and, and, and then yeah. digest all that You're right. Meat? A lot of them just throw them up too the same way. And we've always figured that in general, you might get one or two good bite nights in a row, but you never got three or four nights in a row. Right. Like sailfish. Why do the sailfish bite two days in a row, the third day they shut off? Why is it that when you're fishing off Palm Beach for Blue Marlin or in the Bahamas and the weather's flat calm, it's a beautiful day, all day, and nobody's caught a fish. And at 1 o'clock, that wind goes to the southeast. There's a front coming tomorrow. There's 40 boats on the on the whole line over there. They caught one Blue Marlin all day. Between 1 and 3 o'clock, they catch 30. Do you, do you think these animals uh, feel the barometer There's and they no think question. that this is their chance to, to to get some food before the storm comes? There's no question. Just like bass, like trout, like every other fish. If you live, I teach this all the time, and I, Susie Orman's my favorite person to tell the story. This year, tell me how smart you are. Tell me next year how dumb you were last year. Right. Because if you absorb everything I say every time and you put that in your little bank or your computer, you live off of that every time. And just you recall it and put it to use, to your use, and you'll catch more fish. You know the old story that 10% of the fish we catch 90% of the fish? Yes, yeah, true. It's really 5% catch 95%. Yeah, I agree. And that's what it is. But I tell everybody you got to be prepared. I mean, you go home, make sure your line and your reel's right. Make sure your knots are right. 
Make sure your hooks are sharp. Make sure you're fishing what the fish have been biting on lately. You'll catch more fish. Anybody that goes out and loses a fish because a line breaks, stupidity, it's crazy. Why do people gravitate to a certain fish like a snook? I know like uh, like Steve Huff now, over all these years, he and Del Brown did all the stuff that they did with Permit. They call all these world record tarpon, but right? he's a snook guy. Right. What What is it about snook that, that drives that, that heart so vividly towards that, that Because that they're fish? hard to eat, they're good to catch, and they're fun. A snook is one of the, you know, I was always said one of seven kids. We had no money, and I mean no money. My father bought, we bought a Sears and Roebuck freezer, layers of, all right, I'd bring these snook home, and Daddy would take the snook fillets, the flayed skin, the whole bit, and take them and lay them on, back then with saran wrap tape paper, and wrap them up, and then aluminum foil and wrap them up. And he'd put the the 12-pound fillets, the 15-pound fillets, the 20-pound fillets, the 22-pound fillets on different shelves. And Mom said we need a snook for six of us tonight or seven of them. Did he go and get two fillets out? Cut them up, so clean them up. You lived off a of snook? We lived on snook. We really, 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 really lived on snook 12 months a year. We used to have a guy by the name of, shouldn't say it today, but I will, a man by the name of Virgil Clark. Virgil Clark was the meat manager at Publix in Boca Raton on 20th Street. And he used to come over and visit Dad. They went to church with him and, you know, all that kind of stuff. One of those, you know, one of the good old boys. When Virgil Clark would show up, he always had a box. I didn't pay any attention. And what he brought was he brought a box of, of meat, chicken, whatever else he had from Publix stuff. And Dad would give one or two or three packs of snook. Trade off. He traded him snook because against the law to sell snook. You couldn't trade. Right, right. right, so, right. so Daddy always gave Virgil Clark snook. It's one of the few people in my life. The other thing is, through the years, I dated a lot of different women. And the girls all loved snook. I fed it to all the mothers and fathers, and they all loved it. After I break up a, with a girl, she'd call me one day. Or the mother would call me and says, do you have any of that good fish? What's wrong? You got somebody coming for dinner? He says, yeah, my my daughter's got a new boyfriend. She wants to impress him with your snook. <laughs> <laughs> click. Click, right. Click. So I heard all those stories. Yes, yes, yes. Tell me about your uh, your big Jack Crevel you've caught. You've caught a couple of monsters in one. Uh, I've, caught three, very... I've caught three Jack Crevels over 50 pounds. And when I was a kid growing up, I thought the Jack was, if a Jack could jump, it would be the be- bigger than any blue marlin or anything else ever Lived in the ocean. You think pound for pound it's the hardest fighting fish? <clears throat> i tell you what it's very similar to. There was an old man years ago that brought Andy Lyon into the United States. And he uh, used to fish two-pound tests. His name was Arthur Burrell. And he fished world records. But his number one fish he used to catch was an amberjack. And he thought more of catching amberjack than anything in the world because they fight almost as hard as a Jack Ravel. We've all been fishing when we catch a jackerbill on a fly rod, a spinning rod, and they're five, six, seven, eight pounds, and they beat you to death. The other thing is you learn with a jackerbill, like you do with a fly rod, how to fight a fish. You learn if you take the rod and roll it right or roll it left, you can make that jack swim this way or this way, the same as you make a tarpon swim mm-hmm. this way or this way. Probably one of the best lessons you'll ever learn with a rod and reel is go catch a jack. How do you keep him out of the pilings? You make him swim the way you want him to swim. 
Because if you pull on him this way, he's going to go down. He's going to do, do anything he wants to. A lot like handline and yellowtails. We'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, so um, I was I used to fish a lot in Boca Inlet. It's one of my because it was right from the tackle store. We leave the tackle store. I was on Pamela Park Road, go over the bridge and go to the inlet two miles to the south. The Miami Dolphins used to train at St. Andrews in the original days. And a lot of those guys used to come by the tackle store, and I'd tell them how to go fish, where to fish, and the whole bit. So one day I get down there, and there's six of these Miami Dolphins standing on the inlet fishing in my spot right where I told them to go. And they said, I was winding up a fish, and a big fish ate it and took all my line off my reel. I said, yeah, that's a snook or a jack or whatever. How do you know that? Well, that's what it was. So the next day I had them show up in the tackle store before we closed, and I got a big white ice chest that's four foot long, two foot, three foot wide, and held 200 gallons of water. And we drive, had the old Cabana pickup truck. We drive down to the, to the bridge, pull under the bridge, put 10 buckets of water in there and we sit there with a small gold hook, small hooks, and we start catching whatever small fish we can catch. For your bait? For my bait. And my bait was a sand perch, a croaker, um, small snappers, that type stuff. But we didn't even know sand perch worked. So we stand in there and we got to get this out to the end of the jetty. Well, there's a road there so you can walk down it with these four big linemen 300 pounds each, they put it on their shoulders and they want to start walking out. Well, one day they get halfway there and the water's moving back and forth. Well, it falls off one guy's shoulder. This ice chest falls to the ground with 25 baits in it. Oh, my God. And that's it. Boy, they felt bad. They, they will kill each other, literally, because, <laughs> you know, Jay's, you know, he did it. I didn't do it, but it fell off my shoulder because he went. So I said, all right, next time what we're going to do is we'll put it in the water. As the tide starts out, we'll swim the cooler out in the corner. That's all I had to do. Just float it out there. So we floated out there. They liked that a lot better. That way they got cooled off in the whole bit. So the next day we showed up and did the same thing. 25, 30 baits in it, get it out to the north jetty, set it up on the rocks or on the beach, and we start fishing. And, again, I use a, a rod about 10, 10 and a half, 11 foot long with 80 or 100-pound line, and my rig is I've got a 6 or an 8-ounce egg sinker. Line goes through it. Put a swivel on the end. That's heavy. Well, you have, how fast is the current now? It's end? a big, yeah. Okay? Yeah. All right? So I get my line through the middle of the sinker, 3-foot to 4-foot leader. I take my same 9175-type hook, 8090 hook, and a hook of bait. If you're fishing a bait in the current, you got to really put him in the nose. That way, he can, he's not killing himself. Right. If you hook him in the back on the side, he can't can't operate right. So you hook him in across the nose, flip the bait out 15 feet off the rocks. Sinker goes down to the bottom, and the lead does this. And you just raise the rod and let out a little more line, a little more line. All of a sudden, the rod bangs. Fish ate it. Now. When you look at a bass eating a bait in the water, you see the bait there, you see him suck it in, the bait's gone, and all you see is a line. So the leader and the hook and the bait is in the fish's mouth. Wind down tight, set the hook, you now have a fish on your line. 
And that's exactly how I explained it to them. And every one of them listened because they all were some sort of fishermen to some degree. So first day out there, we catch six or seven snook, put them in the ice chest, get them back, tide's coming in. By this time, float the cooler back to the bridge. And then I fillet the snook. And then the guys would take the fish back to the, the camp. And whoever cooked for all these pro football players had fresh snook to eat. I kept one or two, and they kept the rest. So we did this probably 30 times over the years. And they loved it. They thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And they even got an autograph. But anyway, I'm the only guy in the world. I've been all over the world with everybody. Never asked one, one person for an autograph. I've given a few, but right. never. Fish for necklace, fish for all these other people. No, no need it. Thank you. I appreciate it. But just, you know, that's what it is. Well, it's the experience. Well, that's it. I, I had as much fun as they did. And I still look at it this way. But you better tell me about the tell me about this big fifty pound. All right. So anyway, we're out there yeah. one day, and um, there's a, a a black guy uh, lived right here in Deerfield Beach or Pompano Beach, and he caught a sand perch, and I told him I would like to have that sand perch. And Mon, no, but we have to eat that. Well, I'll give you a snook for it if I catch one. He said, No, Mon, no, Mon, you lose my fish. And I said. Better deal. Here. That fish right there is yours. Here. You okay? Yeah. You serious? Yeah. It's a brand new 10, 12-pound snook. I just want your perch. You nuts. I said, well, that's your snook. That's my perch. So I take his hand perch. I hook him on. Throw him right back where, because that's where I had to the other snook. Throw it right back out there. Thump. I get a bite. Set the hook. Rod bends double. And once in a while we do that, we catch a 80, 90, or 100-pound tarpon same way. It drags tight, almost get yanked in the water. And I got stories about that too, but we ain't going to do that another day. So I'm fighting this fish, fighting this fish, and I finally get him up, and it's the biggest jack I'd ever seen in my life that, that was on land. Um, we took him back to the tackle store and weighed him. He weighed 50 pounds, maybe 51, but 50-pound jack. And... I told a guy to come by the store the next day, and I gave him the jack also. So he got it for this sand perch. He got my snook and the jack also. But so I'd never seen him that big. Well, a few years later, I'm fishing in Boca Lake, um, north side of the Boca Raton Inlet, with the Lake Boca Raton on the right hand side. There's a bunch of docks along there with boats nowadays. It used to be owned by a man by the name of Jim Smith. Jim Smith is a very, very famous boat builder, as you know, sure. and race, racing boats and everything else. And he had a lot of bait right there all the time. And I'm sitting there along the seawall, and the snook used to go up and down the seawall. And you'd sit there and hold a mullet and ward and try to catch the snook. Well, you learn all kind of stuff. That when other fish are chasing the bait, the snook and the jacks will come in and trying to find out what's going on. So we used to lay down on my belly and take a five-gallon bucket and put a little bit of water in the bottom of it, take the handle, and slap, 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 10 or 15 times. Then you put your bait in the water, and you got snook, jacks, and tarpon, and barracuda that all moved in, see what's going on. And I put my bait in the water to Jack Cravel that was 57 pounds, ate my mullet. And he came to see what was causing the noise. He almost cut me off. 
across the whole lake at the Boca Raton Hotel and Club's docks. Now, across that lake is three or 400 yards, right? It's a long way. Yeah, it's a big oh, yeah. lake, yeah. All right, I had him on a, a pin jig master, 20-pound line, took all the line off my reel, and the guys over there could see the fish almost, and I'm pulling for all I'm worth to keep him out of pilings over there. Fought him for an hour and a half, two hours, get him back, got a gaff off the big boat, and pulled him up the seawall. Weighed 57 pounds. Probably t- eight, ten years later, I'm fishing in Boynton Inlet, and again, we'd fish the outgoing tide. We'd fish mullets, sand perch, croakers, whatever bait. That time of year, the fish were feeding on. And I believe at that time, they were feeding on croakers. And again, I didn't have any bait. I talked the guy out of the croaker, gave him a snook for a croaker. They used to say, here comes the croaker man, because I, I wanted their croakers, <laughs> all right? And I caught a 58-pounder on the North Jetty right there, same way. And you went swimming one night. Well, that's another story. I want to hear that story. Right, I'll tell you one second. I'll tell you what did happen there, though, is we were standing there, and we get the mullet wrapping around the, the jetty coming in, the tarpon, the snooker, jumping out of the water, feeding on them. And there's a guy throwing a cast net. And I told the man, I said, sir, you better be real careful. Those mullet are real thick under the surface there. Sonny, I've been doing this before you were born. I said, I didn't say anything about that, sir. That current's ripping. If you get too many baits in there, it's going to yank your butt right off the seawall. Son, don't tell me nothing. I shut up. I go back up along the wall there, and I hear a bunch of people screaming. And I look. This guy threw the cast net. He let it sink over that wide of black mullet coming in the inlet. In that current, he pulled on it. And he went, went right off the end of the jetty. When he went off the end of the jetty, he's underwater. And he's connected with the line. And he's connected to the rope. There was two, um, let's say, Palm Beach firemen, medical people, two other people there. By the time they found him, he was dead. He drowned. No kidding. With that rope on his arm. And you'd warned him. Yeah, just, just they all heard me do it. Oh, God. That must have. Oh, it still to this day hurts me to tell the story. A mullet killed that guy. Yeah. Yeah. A school of mullet. No, but we've we've th- we've thrown our cast net in the keys, and, and it gets so full, it you, takes two people to get it up right. to the boat. Well, I don't. And I can see with current, you know, one guy with maybe a hundred mullet, he's got zero chance unless you have a knife to cut that rope. You're done. You are. You're done. That's crazy. It happened to me. I almost went through Boca Spillway through the cast net on the north, on the west side, trying to catch um, um, shad. Net gets sucked underneath the, the the gate. Oh no! Here you are stretched out. I got my hands on the on the fence. I'm being stretched out. My arms, purple, blue, yellow, pull my pulling me apart. And um, somebody got hit it with a rope with a knife. knife. Otherwise, Thank you would have been that guy. I'd have been the guy going through the gate. Yeah. Well, tell me the night you you ended up swimming across the intercoastal. Well, what happened was. We used to do, you know, the mullet run comes every year in September. We used to say October 15th is when the migration of mullet come from the Carolinas, come down the coastline with the bluefish, the jacks, the tarpon. I can remember in the early days, Boca Raton on the ocean, you look out and there's 10, 20, 30 acres of mullet as far as the eyes can see. You got ground swells coming in, and you got big sharks with their mouths open swimming through them. You got the silver sides of the tarpon. You can see this every year still. Knifing through them. Knifing through them. 
Well, I'm supposed to be in church. I'm about, I guess I'm 15, 16, 17 years old. And I told mom I was going to ride down to the pavilion, and I'll be right back. So I rode down the pavilion. I went to the tackle store and got my rod and reel because it was right down the street. And I'm standing there, and the bluefish are biting every cast, the jacks, the snook, the tarpon, everything. So I hook a mullet on my spinning rod, which is a Luxor 7 Cs. I'm using Shakespeare 5400 blue line um, and Shakespeare 1187 rod even. I can remember that much that many years ago. That's over 40 years, 50 years. And I hook a fish. I really don't even know what I've got on. But I realized pretty fast it had to be a big jack or a big tarpon. Well, the current that time of year is always going to the south. That's why the bait's moving south, the current. And I fought the fish on the along the beach, my knee-deep water, whatever, waves breaking on you. And I got 10 people behind me, and then 20, and then 30, and then 40 people behind me following us. Because I'm fighting this fish for hours. I get down almost to the to the Boca Inlet, and I realize I'm in trouble because I'm going to lose this fish because he's on the other side of the inlet, which is 100 foot wide, 150 foot wide, 200 foot, whatever. And he's going to cut me off on the, on the south side. You're young and you're dumb. So I walk up to the rocks as far to the right as I can, putting the rod in my mouth because it is cork grip, and I jump in. You want your fish. I want my fish. <laughs> and the current's ripping out, so I'm swimming as hard as I can to stay afloat and to get across the inlet. My head's shaking because the fish is shaking, and I get on the south side. They pull me up on the rocks. Thank God I did have shoes on that day. And I get down off the rocks, and I walk down on the beach, and I keep right on walking toward Deerfield Pier, which is three miles away. And I'm fighting this fish, I'm fighting this fish, I'm fighting this fish. And by now, I know it's a big jack. Well, there's a guy that stayed with me, a big old black farmer from out, you know, West Boca type guy, and real good guy. My, my customers were my friends, and they all knew me. So, mine... That mon, that biggest fish I ever see. Big, no, you can't lose it. I said, no, I'm not going to lose it. I catch it. You got to give me a ride back to the um, pavilion. To, to the pavilion. My bike is there. Everything I got is there. And the one guy said, Well, I have my car here. I'll take you. We go. We go. No, you're getting the fish. So we fought the fish, fought the fish. Finally, somebody shows up with a little three foot hand gaff. We get the fish in the surf. And he wades out and gaffs him, pulls him up. And we take him, walk up the shore, 50 guys walking with us, back to the car. Well, the whole thing I noticed, this was started at 7 o'clock in the morning. This is now 1.30 or 2.30 in the afternoon. Wow. And I'd seen planes. I'd seen police cars with lights and all kind of stuff. Something going on. Somebody drowned or somebody, something happened. But we, we didn't talk about it much, but we'd all seen it. Pull back up in the pavilion. You know, right where we stopped all the time, got out of the car, walked around. He opened the tailgate and grabbed his jack. Well, there's 40 people there see this fish, and they're all excited. And the policeman says, Tom, where you been? I said, I've been fighting this jack for four or five hours. Do you see these airplanes? Helicopters. Uh, helicopters. <laughs> all these ambulances, they're all looking for you. We found your pants and your wallet floating in the ocean. They all figured you drowned and got eaten by the sharks, and you were dead. I said, no, what happened was I 
took off my pants, rolled them up, put them in my bicycle in the basket, and moved my bike down here closer to the shore so I could watch it. The tide came in high now because it was dead low. Came in high, and my pants got washed out. And somebody found my pants float in the ocean and had my wallet in it, which was nothing in it, really, except name and ID type stuff. And they thought I was dead floating in the ocean. So that was a big story. And I said, as long as nobody called my mother, because that would kill her. So <laughs> how, stri- how big was that, Jack? It was 43 and a half on 12-pound test. Wow. That was the first big one I'd ever caught like that. What's your greatest fish catch of all time? Is there one? I've had three blue marlin on over 1,000. Um, I fought one with Barky Garnji in Venezuela over 1,000 on 30 pounds. That was a world record, but we lost him at the side of the boat. Yeah. Um, I had two others on different spots. Um, I've caught, I went down and fished with Barky Garnji in Venezuela, um, and all we caught was sailfish and white marlin on four-pound test. We broke one line that was on a blue marlin that when he ate the bait, greyhound away from the boat, and you know, the, the dragon awarded. I fought a, a blue marlin with Kelly and Josh and Everett in Kona, Hawaii, over a thousand on eight pound. Wow. Uh, that was a world record. How long did you have that fish on for? Six and a half hours. Holy cow. To me, that's just unfathomable. And, and a lot, not a lot of people know this story, but for real, I broke it off myself on purpose. My wife was, um, first got married, we went to Kona to go fish with them. And then we went to Australia for a week and fished there with Peter Wright on the Great Barrier Reef. Came back and, you know, fished blue marlin on eight pound. Because Kelly and Josh, Kelly's got the world's record blue marlin men's 1103 on 30. Joshin has a, I believe, a 969 on 30 women. And they've, Pam Basco had all kind of records with them also. She had records on two pound test. I mean, I had set the world record on snook. I caught 300 snook in one season on two-pound test, trying to break the world record. I broke it 50 times. Before I 50 it. times. What was the biggest fish on two? S- 17 on two. Oh, wow. my gosh. So, but I caught 300 and 100 of them were over 10, and that was all world records at the time. But I anyway, not forget that part. But um, there's been a lot. I've done a lot of light tackle fishing, too, and I enjoyed that. I mean – I can remember being hard-headed, driving around my little car in Boca Raton, and I got a 10-foot snook rod full of a 100-pound line or 130-pound braid and got one other rod laying next to it with two-pound test. So I'm either fishing the lightest I can fish or the heaviest I can fish for the, for the application. But with, but with the current and, and, and snook, I would think it would be almost impossible to catch a big fish on two. It's hard. We, well, we did... Um, when I was doing that on two pound, I was fishing Holo, or, um, Hills, or Port Everglades mostly, and I was fishing Jupiter Inlet and area called Blowing Rocks. Because because most of your stuff, so if you're on the ocean, two is available. But right. if you're fishing an intercoastal under a bridge, that's almost impossible it's, because it's, of the current. Too much structure too. Well, the, the probably one of my greatest catches of my life is I was on the Pamela Park Bridge, incoming tide. Every year we get a migration of bait fish, to me and you, we call them um, almost like a silver side minnow, which is a sardine with all the scales. They come into the intercoastal by billions. You throw a net, you can't lift your net. And the snook would feed on them. And I used to sit there with a, a 1-0 small hook, drop the single 
hook in that school of bait and snag a bait. Take about three times to snag one. Flip it right out and let it go down, and a snook would eat it. I caught four snook one night, weighed 113 and a half pounds on eight-pound test. Again, that same Shakespeare line, same rod, that same, um, actually, he's using a Luxor reel. But I caught four snook, weighed 113, bigger 33 and a half pounds. And I'm standing on the end of the pilings on the northwest side of the bridge. Climb down, get down the pilings where the cluster go together, fighting them on the incoming tide. And they go up to the north, and I fight them back in the belly in the, the west side of there where they're going to get ready to build a park in, in Boca there. But that's one of my greatest catches of my life. Wow. But and then I'd put them on my bicycle handlebar and take them home. <laughs> four, four fish weighed 113 and a half pounds on eight pound off the bridge. What a great life of yeah. fishing you've had. Tommy, if you have one more day left to fish, would it be snook fishing, marlin fishing? What would it be? Without any question in my mind, it would be snook fishing on a bridge, not out of a boat. Is that more effective on a bridge? There's, there's nothing better than to sit there and stand there and see what you're catching. It's just like when you tease a blue marlin or a tarpon or something up on a fly. I remember fishing a, with my buddy um, Ken Rayner behind um, President Bush's house in Kenny Bunkport. And we're sitting there trying to catch bluefish. So he reaches down and grabs a plug, no hook on it, spinning rod, throws out, pop, pop, kaboom, kaboom. Take your fly and lay it right on the on the on the plug. That's exciting. Bait and switch, yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. So it's the same thing. I don't care. I mean, we fished in San Salvador with Andy Belisari and that group years ago, uh, with fishing fever. In one week we caught a hundred hundred Wahoo over a hundred pounds. Over a hundred. Over a hundred. In one week. In one week. We fed the whole island. You know, <laughs> that's what it was. But we thought the first day I ever saw it, Joe Munson that owned the tackle, my partner in the tackle store, he had a 44 striker called Salt Shaker. We get down there, and we're literally a trolling bonefish for bait because we didn't. This is back in the 70s and sure. early 80s. Sure. We didn't have the lures we have today and all the different stuff. And I used to buy the bonefish from the kids. I'd pay them a dollar a piece. You put them in the freezer, and we come back three weeks. I'll pay you for them. Right. And I taught him how to make a hand line fishing with a bait called a soldier crab, which is a crab. And the bonefish were out there away from shore. You throw it out on a hand line and catch them. But anyway, we're trolling there, and we're fishing probably 80-pound tackle on Penn 80 Internationals. And we knew they were big 100-pound, they're blue marlin and, and big wahoo. And we didn't think much about it. But one day we're sitting there, and... Long right rigger, long left are both bonefish, six, seven, eight pounds. A little shorter, I had two bonefish, like four or five pounds rigged. I had a guy by the name of Randy Fisher who ran, a, at that time, a 44 striker. He he was in the, let's say, the drug business because he went to prison for it later. Um, and Randy was a great guy. Still is to this day. If he ever hears this, he'll be very glad I told the story. But I look up. In the long right rigger, here comes a wahoo out of the water like this. Left rigger, here comes a wahoo out of the water. The one on the right I thought was a blue marlin. I called him 175, and I called him 150. 
No kidding. And they ate the bait. They crisscrossed in the air, and they ate the other baits. They cut all four of them off behind the hook. Yeah. Well, we brought in one of the smaller ones, and the meat's doing this because it didn't come apart all the way, and the fish didn't eat the meat, eat the whole fish. And we're still in a state of shock, okay? And get the bait. We're out of bait anyway. Randy gets out the needle and thread and sews the back body back together, puts them back out, and catches a 500-pound blue marlin on it. <laughs> fish was good. For, for, for real. I mean, yeah, just that's how good it was. We raised down there one time in May and June in southeast winds, 27 blue marlin in 28 hours of fishing. Okay? We were sitting there one day on the striker, and there were three blue marlin came up at one time. The one on the right rigger, we hooked. The one on the left rigger, we missed. And the one in the middle never ate our bait. He was over five, he was over five, and he was probably 1,000 to 1,200. Oh, my God. And they were both that big. Wow. But we could, there's a lot of real – my buddy Scott Hitchcock went down there with his, with his boss man, with a wife, in one of the islands there. They got him on video holding him for 15 minutes, trying to decide whether they want to keep him or kill him. But the boss always said, no matter how big they are, we will not let them – we will not kill them. So she catches this fish on 80-pound, which is could be the world record, Bahamian record, um, the whole bit, because they've got enough measurements and everything else, fish like 14-foot long, you know, bigger than a Volkswagen, and they cut the line and let him swim away after holding him for five minutes by the bill. Wow. But, is there a fly reel that gets your juice going as much as, as a 1,000-pound Blue marlin or maybe a 40-pound snook that you have in your vault or in this home somewhere? Um, no, it's it's just the, the, the terminology of the fly reel. Real fast story there is there was a man by the name of Jerry Coughlin. If you look in the, all of the old original Tycoon Fenner books that advertise the Fenner wedding cake reels, there's a man standing there, and I believe he was with Albright or you know one of the original guides. Jerry Coughlin was one of the world's number one fly fishermen. He was the first man to ever catch a tarpon over 100 on fly on a bamboo rod. He had the world record on a, like the largest Miami Met record of 187-pound tarpon on a Fluger Supreme, the old right. thumb burner. Um, set a lot of records. But the biggest record he did was he won the Miami Met Master Angler 13, 12 out of 13 years in a row. And the only year he didn't win it, um, Ted Williams won it because he was fishing against Ted every year, is he had a heart attack that year and couldn't fish. So Ted got to win one year. Wow. So in Jerry's house, which was three houses from a tackle store on Pamina Park Road, right there on the intercoastal, he had, you walked into his, into his room, I would love to see it to this day because I've been there and seen it. He had a glass dome. To me, it was that big. It's probably only this big. And on top of it was that Fluger Supreme reel that Fluger gold-plated it and mounted his reel in that case. I would I would rather own that antique than anything in my safe. And I got some exotics. But that reel, that, that would be the ultimate to my, in my life. But Jerry Coughlin in those days was throwing a – 
Hedden Zaragoza lure, which is a, it's a wood, all right, and it swims different. Um, I've got them in the other room in there. You know, we've got, we've got so many stories we can do in this house. Yes, for sure. So that's, you know how much is here. Yeah. And we can, and the, the, the crazy thing about me is I loved what I did. I love the people I did it with, and I still have a memory today to remember it all. Yes, you do. And that's the best part about it. Um, somebody says, don't you take notes? And I said, I've done 25 TV shows with Mark Sosen. I've never had one piece of paper in my life. Cute, fast story. I'm going to get out of this. I went to Palm Beach Junior College and 67, 68. Um, it's the only reason I didn't go to Vietnam. I was still going to college. I had three brothers and sisters at home. You know, I'm still working, supporting the family. And I majored in business and that type of stuff. But I had a class, a speech class, and Dr. Rudy Hall was my professor. And um, today we're doing an impromptu speech. So everybody, I'll state your name, three of you, and you got to get up. By the time you get in front of the class, you got to give a five-minute speech. Girls are crying, alligator tears. All these people are sick, got to go to the bathroom, not come back. I mean, they're... They're petrified. So, and every time we say thank anybody volunteer. Well, we did this Monday, Wednesday, th- like, th- you know, three-day class. But Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday came in, and he says, do I have a volunteer? I raised my hand. And the whole class went, you know, they got saved for a few minutes. So I woke up, and this is the year that Jaws movie came out. So everybody in the world knew what Jaws was. So I walk up, stand behind the podium, start talking. And I tell the story, tell the movie, tell how they're doing it. And I give them story after story, how we fight in a tarpon on the beach, get him right in the edge of the surf. It's a true story. And trying to get him through the wave, just about that time he goes by me, but on the other end of him is a 10-foot hammerhead mouth wrapped around his tail. And I run up, take my big rod, stick it on one side of the hammer, and I got my legs on the other side, and I'm trying to control this hammerhead on the beach, on the beach, beached with a tarpon in his mouth, but nobody would help me. And finally, I had to let go of the tarpon, the shark, and he goes back in the water. But I have literally, to that day, hand caught that three, four hundred pound shark, had him on the beach, totally bone dry out of this water. Up on the beach, but everybody ran away, which you can understand. But that's just as crazy. Caught a a, short, a um, very large snake that way. That's another story for another day. But, yeah, that's exactly the kind of stuff. So I sat there and told the story of how they made that film, how they did it, how the sharks were. Um, and I've seen so many. I've seen so many shark stories. You, you know, we'd fight these tarpon in the Keys, you know that. For sure. All night long. or They'd come right in there and bite the head off it, or just bite it in half on the side of the boat. You got a 150-pound tarpon. You get back ahead. We've done all that. Let me ask you, uh, you just sold the, the, the store, and, and being here in your home, I, I see all these things that you've collected, with, you know, with, with your heart and your hard-earned money, and now you're starting to sell this stuff. Are you torn start- in any way about – this transition in your life? 
with these possessions? Because you've been a big collector, and I know collectors a lot of times don't want to sell. You know, in the very beginning, uh, I'd tell a bad story, but I used to have the more of the big game Fenor reels. They call them a 15-0, the giant bluefin tuna reels, Kavaloskis and Lee reels and the whole bit. And they were very big, very heavy, very famous fishing reels. And they meant a lot to me. But they were, with a phone call, I could call you, you, and you, and you'll buy three of them. You know, everybody knew I had the stuff, but for 30 years, I never sold one item. I hoarded them. And now you're selling everything. Well, what what happened there was my little sister and I bought a piece of property in Stewart with a house on it. And during the recession, we got upside down on it real, 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 real bad. And people used to walk in my house. I always had a 65-inch TV. And, boy, I love that TV. I said, yeah, there's 40 or 50 of them in the canal out back. What do you mean? Well, the money I borrowed, I had to pay that note off every month. And it was just like going out and buying a TV and throwing it in the canal. So I finally sold the lot. And when I sold the house, I had to take 250000 to closing. It was upside down. I had no choice. Nothing I could do. So that that hurt bad. Yeah. At the same time, when when this went down, my brother went in the hospital to have a an order valve replaced. They lost him on the table. Mm. That was four years ago, the week of Christmas. Right. And I've been devastated over there ever since. So I picked up the phone, started calling people, and I mean I sold some people a lot of reels. Then I put the money in the bank and had to pay tax on the money. That hurt the worst. I didn't know any better. I wasn't smart enough. Nobody told me how to do it. So, But I paid the tax, wrote the check, took $225,000 to close and to sell, the, to sell the house. So I had it listed for seven ninety five, sold it for two seventy five. Just a bad deal. Yeah. So that's when I started selling some fishing tackle. Yeah. Certain, ta- certain things are, to this day, that you'll never sell? There's a couple of things that I'll never sell, but I will one day. Yeah. You know? My my brother um, listed on eBay, and we just started in the last 30 days selling some stuff on eBay. We just, like I said, sold some stuff the other day around the world. Mm-hmm. And like your buddy, the fly fisherman, you know, Tim, he showed up here the other day, and he wants a couple of Seamaster reels. He had them, but he lost them in his divorce. You know, we all have lost stuff in divorces. Right. It's, you know, I, I tell a cute story this way. I get the guy that calls me on the phone and said, you have this, this, and this. I said, well, come on by the store. Let me see what you got. He said, well, I don't have it. He says, what happened is my father, when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, told me I was not allowed to use his metal rod, his Fluger Supreme reel. That was his. He wasn't allowed to touch it. And I went out on the boat. Turned the boat over, almost drowned. But the rod reels sank to the bottom of the lake, and I've been trying to replace it all my life. I walk over in the corner and says, "You mean it look like this?" That's exactly. I says, "I brought it from a guy that found it in Lake Marion, you know, whatever." I told him, right out of the lake. And so he goes to his father's house that night and takes the father's fishing rod and reel back and tells the father it came out of that lake. <laughs> <laughs> So I lied, he lied, Daddy's happy. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. And <laughs> he paid me for it. Oh, More than I would have sold it for somebody else. Oh. So I've done that all my life. So I've got a customer named Ron from Pittsburgh in the real estate business. And as I told Ron, I was put here in this ocean, in this earth, to help you, 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 and you. 
and just to help people. And that brings you great joy. It's the best part of all. Yeah. Yeah. By far. Yeah. If you can walk into my store and say, what should I do for this or this? And I tell you, and you go out and do good. I'm in, um, three or four years ago, I'm in um, Charleston, South Carolina for my first family reunion with Martin in over 30 years. I never go. I stayed and worked. So the whole family's up there. And we're telling stories and the whole bit. We got got back close together. That's how he's back working with me. And it did me a big favor. But on the phone, I get a phone call from Susie Orman. She's got a fishes over in Cat Key a lot and loves her and her, her, her girlfriend. They're married 15 years or so, um, KT. And they love to catch Wahoo more than anything else in the world. So they're sitting over there and she calls me and she says, how do I catch a Wahoo? I said, I've told you 20 times. I said, I'll make you a deal. You call me back in a half hour. You tape recorded the phone call. You write down what I tell you, and you do what I tell you. She said, there's 18 boats over here, all big sport fishermen with two- and three-man crews with all the equipment and everything else. And I said, what are you in, a Boston whaler? She said, yeah, you know I am. I said, you're fine. Don't worry about it. But do what I tell you. So the next day she calls me, we did it, we did it. I said, what do you mean? Exactly what you said. We went out, we trolled the lures, we did the tides, we did the currents, we did the wind, we did the color combination, we caught the most fish, and we won first place. And she sent me a picture of the trophy. But they use that of what I told them to their benefit. So my, my statement has always been, doesn't matter how many fish you catch, it's how well equipped you are, number one. But if you it's put it on my time on my tombstone, you forever and ever. Just listen to me and I'll tell you. I ain't gonna charge you for it. Just listen. And the, the advice is free. Cost you nothing. But if you want to listen to me, I tell a story all the time I used to do. A guy walking in the tackle store and he walks up and down the the wall looking at all these lures and all this bait and all this tackle. Some people won't like this. So he sits there and he's going to go fishing. And I said, well, you must own a sailboat. He gets a big old grin on his face. And I look at him and I said, you think everything else is free like the wind. You got to buy this stuff to have what you want. <laughs> exactly what I tell him. <laughs> I've been accused of that pretty bad. Free like the wind. Mm-hmm. But then I get the other guy that comes in the store and he says, that's a lot of money to pay for that. I said, if you caught this, this, or this out of your sailboat, or what I've got a Dr. Ben Anderson here that used to be our local doctor. And I got cut above my eye one day real bad with a piece of plastic pipe. The kids were goofing off. So I called the office. He gets on the phone. He says, stay right there. So I'm not going anywhere. I can't. I'm, well, he tells the girl, she goes out the back door, gets in his car, drives over to my, my shop two miles away, comes in, lays me down, sews me up, goes back to work. He ain't going to do that for nobody else, but he'll do it for me. Because I taught him how to rig a swimming mullet. Sure. You made him happy. He'd catch fish for people. Fish. He caught as many fish in a sailboat as other people caught in a, in a real boat. Right. No, be- for sure. Because he listened. Well, you are a man of, of, a, of a big heart and great passion, and you have great Great information. And well, I loved what I did. Yeah. So I picked everybody else's brain. They said, How do you learn all this? 
there's never been a time in my life the the guy from Venezuela, Costa Rica, anywhere else in the world, what color did you use? What did you do? What did you do? I have a buddy named Scott Hitch in Boca Raton who was a world-renowned fisherman. He was my little brother growing up, four years younger. And I always tell him I think he's older. But And he's a very, very good fisherman. His son, at a very early age, won the Bahama Championship you know, on a big sport fish boat. But Scott runs a 96-footer today. Still a great fisherman. He's the one that led that 1,000-pound blue marlin going to Bahamas. And if you do it right, you can do a lot of things. Um, and just You just got to put in your time. But don't be so – how many people do you know that walk down a stream? They see the rock on the other side. And the other guy's got better eyes than he is. He says, you see that trout on the backside? No. You're full, of, you're full of whatever. He says, it's right there on the left side of that rock, right by that little rock. No. He picks up his fly rod, lays the fly on it. Fish comes up, eats it, and catches it. He says, did you see that the whole time? He said, yeah, I've got good glasses. I could see what I was doing. That's where the fish is going to lay on the backside of that rock, right? Yeah. How do you know that? Well, that's how they feed. I'm standing on Pemina Park Bridge on the north side the one day in the snook. Every time a school of mullet would come in, he would just blow them up. And I'm standing next to my buddy Harvey Scheller, who's a great fisherman. He's probably the most competitive man I've ever met in my entire life, ever. He played football for Seacrest and did phenomenal. And I said, see that snook right there? No. Five minutes later, the fish would blow up. I said, you see that snook? No. So I went down to my car and got a big old creek chub pikey. It's got those big treble hooks on it. Wound it up, took my line and tied it to the eye of that hook. And I'm standing there almost like a fly rod, slinging my hook. He's, what are you going to do? Is I'm going to snag that snook, the one you can't see. There's no way. Three or four times, I flip it out and let it go. Got him. Got about a 14, 15-pound snook that was sitting right there under the surface. Mm-hmm. Took the hook out of him and threw him back in. What are you doing? I said, well, you're not allowed to do that. I had to prove a point to you. Right. And I let him go. Standing on um, in Stewart on 25-cent bridge, there'd be t- 10 people on the bridge. But the, the problem we used to have is wherever we caught the fish on this side, they go to that side. We go over there, and they go to this side. Whatever we do, they drive you nuts. Sure. You know that. It's like you go to Buchanan or one of these banks, and you get set up there. Next morning, you get there, and the guys are already sitting where you were you know, for sure. yes, yesterday. Yeah. And they tell everybody else, so you're dead for that. Well, um, I'm trying to remember my story. You're in 25 cent bridge, and they're getting All right, pushed. So anyway, there's a 11, 12, 13 year old kid there going back and forth, back and forth. He's trying to catch a snook. So I get his rod and reel, and I tie a hook on it, and said, "I'm going to put a bait on here." So I found a small silver mullet, hook him right in the back of the head, and we don't do them in the back of the head, but just I want you to stand right here because they hear this fish splash. That fish is going to eat your bait. I don't see the fish. I said, you will see him. You watch. You don't move. Don't move your rod. Don't move your bait. Stand there and hold him right there. Ten minutes, 15 minutes go by, and I'm, you did any good yet? And I caught a couple of snook walking up and down the bridge. No, but I hit three times right there. Five minutes later, he's screaming. Rod's bent double. He's got a fish on, so we go get a, a big hoop net, drop it down. He's got a 14-and-a-half-pound sea trout. Oh, my God. The world record sea trout. 
<laughs> and I'm trying to tell him it's a snook because I didn't look at it good enough. But that kid caught a 14-and-a-half-ounce sea trout on the bridge right there on my mullet, on my hook. Oh, that's me telling him what to do. Oh, my yes. God. So that kid, to this day, rest of his life, and that's at least 30 years ago. Well, look, you've done this to so many people. You've touched our lives. We're going to wrap this up at this point because your stories can go for the next 16 days nonstop. And <laughs> I, I know guarantee how much you, I can tell you a thousand these. stories. I, we, have, we get this and we understand this, and we are so glad to have you on this podcast. We've been friends forever. Right. And we've always spoken about we've got to get fish together. We've never been able never to fish th- together. Right. But I fish together with you when we get together and we tell all these great stories. That's all it is. And our audience is going to love uh, this session with you. Today. All right. Well, good. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tommy. Tommy. Thank you I very, very it. much. I appreciate it. You are a legend as big as that statement. <laughs> for big, sure. As big as my head. <laughs> yeah. No, you're awesome. <laughs> Thank All right, you, I enjoyed you. it, both of you, very you sincerely. Thank you so much. Any questions? Thank you. You're the best. Tom Green lived a dream life of an angler when big fish swim near small towns that are now overrun with greed and high-rises. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do us a huge favor and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.